Well, I want to want to thank you, Pastor Greg, for that that really kind introduction. Uh, you make me want to move back to Banff, and uh, and I, I can't tell you how how comforting it is to um, to hear that to hear that from from the pulpit. I I love this church. I love you guys. And to hear your shepherds say that the, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, will, will never depart from, from this building, uh, you guys are, are in good shape. And no matter what the world throws at you, uh, it, it, it'll be for His glory, and you guys are going to do well. So what we're going to do today, uh, my, 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 very, my favorite way to explain the gospel, to any, any opportunity I have, is substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that God, out of his extreme love for you, has sent his son to die as your substitute, to take the wrath that is coming. There will be a final day of wrath that will come upon the world, but to pour out that wrath on his son instead of on you so that you can be blameless. And you can actually, right now, know the final outcome on that final day that Jesus Christ took it for you. That's my favorite way to talk about the gospel. But a few months ago, I said, "How I want to I want to articulate it even better. Where can I go in the Bible that I could just find new, fresh ways to explain it to anybody and everybody, especially to to my daughter Michaela, who's almost five? And what hit me was the Book of Acts. In the Book of Acts. Peter, Jesus' number two, this fisherman up from Galilee, trained by the king himself for three years, has these incredible preaching opportunities, like uh, the day of Pentecost, where, where Jews from all over the world are there in Jerusalem, and they see what God is doing, and they say, what, what is this? And Peter steps up, and I thought, what does Peter say? What, where, did, where does it go? What does he quote? And then Acts chapter 3, which, which Lee just read for us now, what is Peter going to say? And then the, the defense against the Jewish leaders that, that don't like what he has to say, that don't want the name of Jesus preached, what does he say then? Or in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius, this, uh, this Italian Roman Gentile, who fears the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he sends for Peter, what, and, and he says, I've gathered my family and my friends. We're here to hear what you have to say. What would Peter say? So that, that's where we're coming from today. We're going we're gonna to check uh, Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at one of those examples where Peter has the audience. And what does he choose? What, how is the gospel articulated here? So you're most likely already there. If you're not yet, please flip over to Acts chapter 3. Let's go through this together. So, this man, remember this man who was lame from birth. He was not able to walk from birth. And every day, he would be carried to the temple to a particular gate. There, there's a predictability here where people who are walking through that gate, they see this man all the time. See, he can't walk. And suddenly, the crowds are running because this man, who we found out, found, find out in the next chapter, it actually is 40 years old. For 40 years, he was paralyzed, and he's no longer paralyzed. He's jumping, he's running, he's screaming, he's excited, 
And, and imagine if you're there and you think, what's, what's the commotion? You're there to pray and you run over and you see the crowds gathering and you go and you look. It kind of reminds you of what you saw back when Jesus was in this very same place and crowds were gathering and there was tensions with the leadership. And you look to see what's happening and you see this man that's always been paralyzed and he's hanging on, he's clinging on to these two men. Uh, one's Peter, one is John. You recognize them from having been with Jesus. And, and this is what happens, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran to them in the portico called Solomon's, or Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw it, when Peter saw the crowds gather together, he addressed the people. I, I, I have to be thinking, the last time this happened, not so long ago, Peter opened his mouth, and God, the Holy Spirit, spoke through Peter. And how many people were added to the church that very day? 3,000. 3,000 souls. The church went from 120 to 3,000 last time this similar setup happened. And Peter sees this and realizes, now's the moment. Uh, And this is what he says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Like It, it wasn't us. We're humans like you. It wasn't us. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. To choose to describe God by this very familiar formula, this is huge for continuity. This is not something new that's happening. Peter is saying, our God, the one that we hear about, the the God of our patriarchs, the God who brought us out of Egypt, who has been saying he would do this. He's been sending his people. He's been saying the day will come when God will, Emmanuel, God among us, will be here. And Peter is saying, that God did this in front of your eyes. And the reason? To bring glory, to glorify who? Not Peter, not John. To bring glory to his servant, Jesus. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God among us. Whom you delivered over. So this, I love this. Like in our Canadian culture, it's so hard to give, you know, the good news and the bad news. It's so much easier to give the good news and then whisper the bad news kind of low. Not in the Israeli culture. There, they can just give it to you as it is and Look at what he says. Whom you, like the audience that's like very curious about what happened, who you delivered over. Kind of like remember when you betrayed him about 50 days ago? Who you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, the Gentile governor of Judea. In his presence, you deny this Jesus. When he had decided to release him, Pilate, remember, was going to release Jesus. There was an out. But remember what the Jewish people said, the leaders at the time said? Crucify him, crucify him. May the blood be on us and on our children. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That was uh, Barabbas. Remember Pilate said, by tradition, I will release one prisoner. Do you want this guy, Barabbas, or I can release to you Jesus? And they shouted, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. And look at verse 15. Peter says, and you killed, and then what description? 
Look in your Bible in verse 15. What description is used for Jesus? If you have the ESV, the author of life. Some translations will say the prince. Some translations will say the originator of life. I love this. The author of life is Jesus Christ. Um, in John, John chapter 1, where John says that all things were made through him. And then Paul would say something very similar in Colossians 1, that all things were made through him and for him. And if you substitute him with Jesus, all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. That puts Jesus in a, in a completely different category than the world sees him if everything was made through him and for him. You killed the author of life. This is but, but what happened. You did that. What did God do? Whom God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. The execution of the author of life and the resurrection of him. He did not stay dead. And these 11 are the witnesses. They saw it happen. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is evidence. This man clinging to these apostles is evidence that Jesus Christ is alive and well. If he wasn't, he would not be able to do this miracle. And, and to say for a moment that Jesus was actually not the Messiah, and he was just a liar, and he deceived a bunch of people, and then the Romans executed him, and then his body was actually just stolen, hidden, some kind of conspiracy. Why on earth would the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Knowing who, who would be glorified, why on earth would he heal this paralytic man? Knowing that the apostles would bring the glory straight to Jesus. No, this is evidence. This man's standing is evidence that Jesus Christ is alive and that Yahweh wanted to bring glory to his son. And remember what he said about his son at, at his baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Same thing at the Mount of Transfiguration. So, verse 17, and now, brothers. I love that Peter's calling them brothers. There's, he, he did hold back. He says, you guys did this, but, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. What, what tremendous grace, what mercy Peter is giving here. He could just be like, you know, like throwing it at them and saying, but, I know what you did. You acted in ignorance as also your rulers. I think we should take from this to we give people the benefit of the doubt. When you can, where you can, if as far as it depends on you to extend mercy, even when you know there's been wrong, do all that you can to give the benefit of the doubt, but still do so in truth, love and truth. Is but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here, Peter is saying, this was on schedule. He says, the prophets, 
those men that, have, that were sent by God, that spoke from God, they said that this would happen to the servant. Um, there's so many, uh, but think about my favorites, uh, Isaiah 53, when it talks about how he would come, that, that one would bear our sins, the, the sorrow that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That he was executed like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was murdered. He was put into the grave of a rich man. And yet Isaiah 53 finishes with that character, that individual who's being executed is alive. He comes back from the dead. And Peter is saying, what you did, you, you played your part, but God behind the scenes knew exactly what was going on. It had to happen. But verse 19 Repent, therefore, and turn again. Turn back. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins, and look at your Bible. What does it say about your sins? May be blotted out. This is an incredible verse. Think about this right now for you and me and in our context. There are really, I mean, we're all sinners for sure. And the Bible says that if we say that we're not, we're actually calling God a liar because he says we are. So if we say we're not, we're actually calling God a liar and we're saying that his word has no place in our hearts. But if we admit that we're sinners, we then still have two options, right? We could do what the world says and says, first of all, it's not that bad. Or on the other extreme, it's actually great. You should just actually just embrace your sin and live with it. And that's, that's who you are and that's how you're made. There's nothing for you to change. If you do that, then that record of your sin, it will wait. It will not go away. It will not be dealt with, and it will wait for you on the last day. But if you take what the gospel says instead, you acknowledge you are a sinner, and you repent, you turn back to God, a fresh new start in him, then this text will apply to you. It says, repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Think of the old days before, before computers where it was ink on parchment, ink on paper. Blotted out means there is no record. There's nothing left. If somebody wanted to go and, and find the transcript of your sins, they couldn't. There'd be nothing to pull up because it's gone. It's been blotted out. That is the gift that comes with repentance. The world or liberal Christianity, they lost that. They, they forgot that. They deny that. But that is wonderful news. You can have the record of your sins blotted out. But it takes humble repentance. Confess to the Lord, God, I need you. Please forgive me. Let me be found in Christ and Christ alone. Give me a fresh new start and you will have it. This verse, verse 20, oh, I love it. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Doesn't that sound so good? Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until when? Until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Another translation says, until the time for the final restoration of all things. 
I look forward to the time of the final restoration of all things. The prophets spent a lot of words on telling us or telling Israel about that day that will come. Uh, I think you would recognize a lot of it. I'm going to read one of them to you. If you want to flip there, you can, or you can stay in Acts. Uh, I'll read this quick for you. It's it's Isaiah 11. Does this sound familiar to you? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. These are animals you don't put together. Like, these are animals that one is going to eat the other one within seconds. And yet the day will come when they can, they can actually be together. And, and there's peace, and it's okay. And who's leading them? And a little child shall lead them all. Uh, my little girl, Abigail, who you might have seen walking up and down in the little thing there, imagine her with all these, like, predators and preys following behind. And she's totally in charge, going this way for adventure. A completely different world than, than we have ever known. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Look at that last portion of verse 9 again. The earth shall be full full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This sounds a lot like Jeremiah 31, where uh, it says that you won't even have to tell your neighbor about the Lord because they'll know the Lord already. That is so not now, but that reality is ahead. That will come. The prophets promised it. Other examples of this period of time, uh, Ezekiel is full of it. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 43 It talks about a temple yet to be built, specs and designs that we've never seen. It wasn't any, it wasn't the two or three that we've had in the past. We don't have one now. And yet we're told in the last two chapters of the Bible, there will be a day in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no temple. And yet there's these chapters about a temple and incredible things that happen in the world around that time. One of which, there's going to be a river flowing from the throne in that temple in Jerusalem, that will, a river that will flow towards the Mediterranean, and a river that will flow towards the Dead Sea. And it says that, that the Dead Sea will become full of life. It will be fresh water. There, so much so that it'll be a fishing industry. You will see nets drying on the shores of the Dead Sea. Now, I, uh, I don't know how many of you might have been to the Dead Sea. If you've done a trip to Israel, that is as dead as dead can be. Like, you touch that water, it feels like olive oil. It's so salty. Tourists will sit in it and read a newspaper and get, like, their photo. Uh, there is no fish in, in the Dead Sea. But we're told that the day will come when a river flowing from the temple in Jerusalem will make it a fishing industry. So that day is ahead. Uh, We're told about the reorganization of the tribes of Israel. So in the back of your Bibles, if you have a few maps, you're probably going to see a map that has the days of Joshua, where the 12 tribes of Israel uh, divided up the land, and we know exactly where their boundaries were. Well, in the days of Ezekiel, uh, there was Judah, there was Benjamin, and there was Samaria. There was no tribes of Israel. That had been way back before the days of Ezekiel. 
And yet we're told of a day when Israel will be divided up again. If you're taking notes, this is Ezekiel 48, where Israel will be divided up again. And if you take the time, Ezekiel 48, and you draw that out, it is a fun exercise. Because if you draw that out, it'll tell you exactly which one is where. And then you flip and you check out the map and you realize, we've never ever seen this before. There, are, there are, were tribes that were up in the Galilee that are now in the south of Israel, the Negev. There are tribes that were on the other side of the Jordan in history, like Reuben and Gad, that are actually now on the west side of the Jordan. It describes a period of time history has never known, and it's ahead. And yet, there's a temple in the middle, so it still cannot be the final eternal state, the new heavens and new earth. It's still this transitional time that's ahead, which is so much better than what we've ever known but it's not even as good as what it will be forever, the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Revelation 19, when Jesus is described as ruling the nations with a rod of iron, that's, that's a strange one to apply to the new heavens and new earth where after the lake of fire when we all belong to the Lord, but in the millennium, that kingdom, he will be that good leader that cannot be stopped, which will be very good for everybody. And Isaiah 9, I love that one, when it says, the government will rest on his shoulders. The government will rest on Jesus' shoulders. And that's not even touching Zechariah 14, which is an incredible mic drop of a verse for the millennium. But uh, these are exciting times to look forward to. And um, if you don't know much about the, the theological position of the thousand years of Christ, I would recommend, this book is called 1,000 Years with Jesus. Um, I, I picked this up as an amillennialist, which is just, a, it's a different theological position, which a lot of my heroes hold. Uh, but I picked it up as that, and I put it down, changing my position as, as a premillennialist. So all that to say, the very first page, I'm just going to read you the first couple lines to excite you for what's ahead. The time is coming when the world will be radically changed for the better. It will last for a thousand years, bookended by resurrections, first of the just and then of the unjust. Satan will be chained in the abyss, no longer free to influence the nations. The saints will reign alongside the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. This is a time that will begin after the return of the Messiah and end with Satan's total defeat and the judgment of sinners. It is a very culmination of history, a transition away from the fallen world into the perfection of the eternal state. This is a time known as the millennium. I've read this book twice, and I'm ready for a third round. So, coming back to Acts chapter 3, in verse 20 again, when Peter says, repent, and he says, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the, rest, the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Look at that last part of that verse again. This is foundational. Who spoke? God. God spoke. How? And, or through what? By the mouth of his holy prophets. So when we talk about the, the doctrine of inspiration or inerrancy, 
I once heard somebody say, I was, it blew my mind, he says, oh, that's an American doctrine, as if the Americans made that up. Made up, did was Peter an American? Like that? No, I I will agree. It's been well articulated by American preachers. Thank God, and and may that go out across the world that we would remember what the scriptures say that that the words, the very words of God, were spoken by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That was also Peter that said that. So this is foundational. If you're visiting here today. If, if you're from another place in Canada, if you're from another place in the world, I would just encourage you, uh, if you're part of a church that does not believe that the Bible is perfect and without error, that's what we mean when we say errant, please uh, find one that does. When you go home, uh, ask your pastor about that and find they, they exist everywhere, and that will change the course of your transformation in the Lord. If you can gather under leadership that believes this is perfect and you can be with brothers and sisters that say, amen, let's come under it, I would highly encourage you, please find, find the brothers and sisters that believe in that as well. And so again, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Moses was a big deal, right? Moses, the Jewish people from that time onward, always look back to he was our leader. God spoke to him. God spoke to him on Mount Sinai. He is the big deal. And Moses himself said, the day will come. God will raise up someone like me from your own people. So they and and the rest of the world should have been expecting a Jewish man to rise up and speak the very words of God. And anybody that doesn't listen to him when he comes would be cut off from the community. That's Deuteronomy 18. And Peter here is saying, that time has come, and it's Jesus. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Basically, he's saying across the Bible, across the Old Testament, This was never a surprise. What you saw through Jesus Christ, what he's doing now, this was planned. And then look at verse 25. And this is, he says, you are the sons of the prophets. I find this in contrast to what Jesus said to the leaders is quite interesting. Do you guys remember, it was towards the end of Matthew, I think it was Matthew 23, where Jesus says, to the leaders, to the Pharisees, you know, you whitewashed tombs, you know, you brood of vipers. But he says, your ancestors killed the prophets. And even your own words show that you are from those that killed the prophets. And now you have here Peter speaking to these, the, the Jewish people, and he's saying, you are the sons of the prophets. This, again, is, is a wonderful uh, a bit of mercy, a bit of grace that's coming out of Peter. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's uh, coming from Genesis 12, where God told Abraham, through you, in some way, all of us, would be blessed. The Messiah would come through him. 
God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is kind of like in Romans with like, you know, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now, this, uh, he's on a roll. People are hearing this and he said, well, well what now? It, last time at Pentecost, they said, what do we do? And then he told them, repent and be baptized and receive forgiveness of sins. And they do and 3,000 are added. But look at what happens between this last verse in chapter four. They get interrupted. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they get interrupted. It's over. The leaders have come. They're shutting it down. But too late. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we've gone from 3,000 at the last sermon to 5,000 now. In this moment, 2,000 souls were saved and rescued and names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 2,000 that you and I will meet someday in heaven happened before this interruption took place. So the leaders dragged them out and uh, let's jump down a little bit to verse 8. Then Peter, speaking to the leaders, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. I love that. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, Again, both, he gets both of those in there, the execution and the resurrection. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And now verse 20, this is all the best. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one, salvation in no one else. And again, I would say this stresses the Trinity. It, for, for people who would say, oh, I don't believe in the Trinity. It's not in there. It's not in the Bible. Really? So, so if it's not, and Jesus is just a prophet, just a, sent by God, there's salvation in no one else than just a man? That, that would be like, like extreme idolatry right there. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, he is Yahweh among us, God among us, then that changes everything. Of course, there's no other name by which we might be saved than Jesus Christ, our Lord. So jump down now to verse um, 19. They told him, uh, they charged him not to speak ever again in the name of Jesus in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you be the judge. But verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Basically, there's no going back. What they have seen, Jesus Christ came and walked among them. He walked on the water. He made blind people see. He brought dead people back from the grave. He did it all in front of them. They were witnesses. They lived with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They heard him. 
He said he would die. He said he would come back from life. They, they didn't quite understand, but they saw him executed. They saw him put into a grave. They didn't know what to do. They go back fishing. They see him alive. And they not only see him alive once or twice, for 40 days, again and again and again, different locations across the country. Paul even tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, there was even one point where 500 people at one sitting saw Jesus alive. And Paul even says at the time of the writing, some of those 500 were still alive at that time. So Jesus Christ, they saw this, they can't go back. They, all they can do is say, Death doesn't matter anymore. And they can say to leaders, if you kill me, it doesn't even matter anymore. You just send me to him. And he will come back here either way, eventually too. Everything has changed. And what I want to ask you today, uh, you as, as my fellow Christians or fellow Canadians, um, is this for you? Is, are you like this? Have you tasted Jesus Christ in such a way that you, 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 it's impossible to, to shut you up? from talking to him. If so, I would say keep at it. Keep going. That's wonderful. I'm so grateful that your heart has been changed for him. But you you know yourself. You know where you're at. And if right now you're like, I don't know. I don't know if that's me. I don't know. I Maybe that was me a little while ago, but now, you know, it's getting hard. Or you know, I just, I'm really busy. There's other things. There's other priorities. I would ask, please take a fresh look at Jesus Christ. Be, bring yourself to a place under the Lord where if they tried to stop you from talking about him, you would choose death if it meant that you could just tell a little bit more about him. And what I want to leave you with is Galatians chapter 2, an incredible verse. I must have read this like, I don't know, a hundred times before. And then a few months ago, I, I'm, I'm drinking my coffee, I'm in my living room, and I saw it for a completely different way. Have you guys ever heard before, somebody, has somebody ever told you if you were the only person in the world, Jesus Christ would still have died for you, for you alone? Well, I, I remember someone telling me that as a new Christian. And I thought, oh, that sounds nice. And, but I've always thought, it is like, can you fact check that? Like, is that in the Bible? Like, really, literally, if it was just me and nobody else, Jesus would still have died just for me? And then I saw this. And so Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the fresh new life in Christ. But look at this, the Son of God, so Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And who's, who's talking? Like, who's writing Galatians? This is Paul. Paul lived after the execution of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, after the 40 days of appearing, after the ascension to heaven. So Paul, he's like you and me. He lived in the era after the ascension of Christ, waiting for the return of the Lord again. And despite living after all of those things, Paul is able to say that Jesus Christ gave himself for Paul. He loved Paul and gave himself for Paul. That is exactly the situation you and I are in. 2,000 years later, he loved you and he gave himself up for you. He died for you. So I, I would I, please consider this when you go home today. Please check out Galatians 2.20 again and say, Lord, you really died for me. 
Change my heart, Lord. Help me live for you in a way that I can't stop thinking about you. So that's what I got for you today. Um, if you uh, please uh, stand, I'll pray for you. And, uh, and thank you for being here today. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. Thank you, God, for preserving it for us. Thank you, Lord, for the words you gave Peter on that day. Thank you for the miracle that you did in that man. And thank you, Lord God, that before the, the, the sermon got interrupted, Lord, you had already changed the destiny of 2,000 souls. God, we, we pray that that would happen again, God. We pray for that, Lord, across the world. We especially ask for God in Canada as well. Oh, God, we pray for faithfulness to your word. And we pray, God, that many would come to know you and experience, Lord, eternal life starting now, Lord, and lasting forever in you. Oh, God, we love you. Help us see that you died for us out of your love for us. And, oh, God, help us live for you. We love you, Jesus. Please, God, bless uh, the rest of our day today, our week. And, uh, oh, God, have your hand on, on this church and bless this church and make it a blessing, Lord, to this community. And Jesus, we, we love you, and in your name, God, we pray. Amen.